Okay, welcome to Flood Summer Nights, Episode 1. This is the first in a three-part series uh, designed broadly around the aims of explaining some fundamentals of contemporary left politics, or at least the kind of contemporary left politics that we here at Flood are engaged with. Uh, we've been throwing around the idea of doing a political education series for some time now, uh, and we kind of came up with the idea of doing three shows designed broadly around the topics of uh, defining the problem, defining the aim, and understanding the strategy. So the first show is about defining the problem, i.e. what is capitalism actually? <laughs> we often hear capitalism referred to as kind of an all-encompassing problem, but what do we mean when we say that and why does capitalism work the way it does? Why does it produce these certain effects in the world? We're hoping to tackle this question first by talking through some of the fundamental theories that help us to understand capitalism, and then by looking at how some of the present crises facing the world can be understood as products of a capitalist system. So joining me, uh, I'm Jo, you've probably heard me before on almost every other floodcast, and joining me to discuss these topics are Dave Eden and Robbie Nichols. Robbie has been a contributor to Floodcast before, uh, and many of you will know Dave from Brisbane Smash Hit Anti-Capitalist Podcast, Living the Dream. Thanks you both for coming on the show. No worries. Thanks for setting it up. Yeah, pleasure. It sounds super interesting. So let's kick off with a really broad question. Um, when we talk about capitalism, or as sometimes kind of called in, in more theoretical circles, the capitalist mode of production, what do we actually mean? What would you, how would you answer that one? You go first, Dave. Okay. All right. Um, I think, okay, that's a really fantastic question. And I think the starting point is that um, there's probably a different thing when we're talking about either capitalism or the capitalist mode of production. So I think when we say the term capitalism, we mean um, that a society can be typified either because it's a society that contains the capitalist mode of production. And I think we could go even further and we think that the capitalist mode of production is uh, the determining or dominant factor in that society, the thing that gives that society the character that it has, though obviously it's not everything. Or we say capitalism to mean everything in a society that contains the capitalist mode of production. And I think we're also saying at the same time that that society is part of a broader world system, which also needs to be understood as capitalism. So we, we use it as a term to identify the determining features in a society and also to identify that that society is part of a world system. And I guess the kind of claim that's going on there is to say that if you look at societies as, say, diverse as, say, Australia and Haiti, we're kind of arguing that there's a similar dominant dynamic that exists within them that links those societies together and gives those societies in some ways broadly similar driving forces despite all the other differences that they might contain too. And then I guess the next question becomes, how do you um, define what, what actually is in the capitalist mode of production? What are its um, key driving forces, its elements, its social relations? And also then how do you explain the things that might sit outside the capitalist mode of production that still make a capitalist society capitalist? And I think for listeners already, the big questions going off were, you know, how it relates to ideas of, you know, analysis that might be based, based around gender or race or colonialism or something like that. How does that sound as a, as a starting point? Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, comes up a lot in contemporary political discussions around the market, and around capitalism and the mode of production is the concept of the market. Um, and I suppose for me, 
it's sort of situated situating capitalism itself as I guess a series of social relations as well as an, an economic system of production um, and I think the there's a lot of confusion I suppose that a lot of people associate capitalism with what we would commonly conceive of as the free market um, and I think markets have existed for a long time um, and I think it's important to sort of recognize and you know markets have existed in pre-capitalist societies so I guess it's important I think to make that distinguish distinguishment that um, markets have always existed but capitalism is a particular form of social relations um, that prioritizes profit um, and has the profit driver as I guess the real driver of the system and hence the um, associated exploitation that comes with that. And when you say set of social relations do you reckon you can like draw that out a little bit? Um, what do you what do you actually mean by that? Yeah I think it's like it's I guess it's the way that um, the system itself is structured. Um, so obviously in pre-capitalist societies whether it was um, I guess what's commonly called slave societies like things like uh, Rome or you know medieval society with serfdom they were structured in a way that facilitated a certain kind of production so um, what we'd often associate with medieval or pre-capitalist society um, was associated around agricultural production and a way to facilitate that um, I think the social relations around capitalism are um, are really uh, not fixed they're quite fluid in some ways but are around um, you know having a a working class and a bourgeoisie um, and the the social relations that allow profit to be made through that the the interaction of those two classes yeah you've um, actually picked up on like a question I was gonna ask um, a little bit down the line but I'm glad it's come up now so yeah, we do hear about these two classes, um, the proletariat or the working class and the bourgeoisie as being kind of fundamental, or, you know, society can be divided up along these lines. So, yeah, I wanted to hear more about how do we define these classes, um, what do these categories mean, and are they still relevant um, today? Yeah, I think maybe there's some kind of steps that we need to do to kind of get there, if that makes sense. Um, so I think one of the important points that, that Rob just brought up was the idea that when we use the term capitalism we are we're making a claim about history and that which is saying that throughout human history there have been different kinds of societies and different kinds of modes of production so if you go into an economics 101 class today um, you generally don't receive that understanding you get taught that there's something called economics and economics just expresses the ways that people have related to each other since there have been people so you can pick up um, economic textbooks or you know economic dictionaries and they'll say what is capital and then they'll say imagine um, that you are a neanderthal or you're a, you know an early homo sapien and you decide to build a stone axe that is capital right so they naturalize these kind of historical conditions but the the tradition of radicals using the term capitalism um, are trying to say that there is something specific about uh, this kind of way that society is organized and i think already identify that that kind of society is transitory and that something will come after come after it so there's an implicit kind of emancipatory claim in using the term capitalism to identify struggle and an attempt to go beyond it 
But when we use the term mode of production, I think, you know, what we're really talking about is how the kind of means of production, you know, the, the technologies that exist, the tools and the relationships of production, who owns, who works, who decides or how things are decided, who works and who owns, relate together in a particular way. And the starting point to understand class, and I think, you know, Robin, I and I assume you as well, Joe, are broadly coming from something that could is a development of Marx's work, how that definition of class works from understanding class as the points, as the relationships that exist within that mode of production. Class is where people stand in that arrangement with with the idea that it's an antagonistic arrangement. And I think we'll probably take a little bit of time to get to understand how that antagonism works. And it's important, I think, to identify that this is a radically uncommon way that class is talked about in contemporary society today. Where, where class is normally talked about how people as how people understand their relationship in regards to inequality or it's how you know different layers of um, monetary inequality or it's kind of cultural differences the kind of understanding of class um, that that I'm more attracted to expresses the kind of antagonistic relationships that exist within a mode of production and that may differ from how people actually understand their, where they sit. So you can have a society like Australian society where huge amounts of people will understand themselves as being classless or middle class. But I think from the analysis that, um, that, that I'm, we're presenting here, that doesn't really matter because that re the relationship that they have is the antagonistic relationship that defines class. And part of that relationship also explains why people don't understand themselves as class, if that makes sense. And yeah, it's kind of the um, the what was seen, I think, by some as a, the contradiction of um, during the mining boom, you had miners who were on huge salaries, um, and you know the question was, can that can they still be considered working class? But as you're saying, yes, because they're in a certain like in in a, in a certain relationship within that mode of production. That's what defines it, rather than their income. Yeah, and I think the other point, and I would like us, I hope we will get to this too, is one of the things that is unique about capitalism and probably will under, help us understand why capitalism has been able to spread globally is that the main mechanisms of capitalism appear to be a kind of neutral market of exchange. So if you think about feudalism or tributary societies or slave societies, exploitation was kind of obvious and in front of people's faces. You know, a bloke on a horse with a sword comes by every now and again and says, please give up, give me X amount of your crop because God told, told us that we had to do that. But in capitalism, we live our lives as if we are, you know, formally free individuals now not everyone in global capitalism lives their lives like this and this is probably the difference between a model and reality but we are, we live our lives as if we're formally free individuals and consumers and work appears to be a fair exchange so exploitation is actually masked by the the process that the processes of exploitation mask themselves by the very way that they're carried out in a capitalist society. And that's quite important too as well. So we can say workers during the mining boom that are making $150,000 a year driving a truck as a FIFO worker might have accesses to wealth that they've never had before 
it doesn't mean that there is not exploitation going on. And I guess we'll have to do a little bit of work to work out, to get to talking about how the exploitation happens. Um, and I, Well, I think that's been a bit of a common theme because I, I remember reading something a while ago um, when I think it was sort of in the, the 40s and 50s when I guess uh, pe- ordinary people started having you know, washing machines in their houses and all this kind of stuff. And um, the the sort of, um, there was a bemoaning of the loss of the real worker because now people had like, you know, washing machines in their houses and ovens and electric ovens and this kind of stuff. And I think, so I think that's been a common theme throughout the development of capitalism, particularly in, I guess, places like Australia and the US and Europe. Um, and I think it's also that that's been the case um, but I think something else to consider is also the I guess the the need for capital to expand into empty places and I think by that I mean physical or not um, so the early days of capitalism were very much um, sort of about the um, accumulation of capital and I think Rosa Luxemburg um, in her book about capital, um, an under underrated uh, book, um, sort of talks about the the expansionary nature of capitalism, how that relates to, I guess, the twentieth century that we've just been through, with you know lots of um, competing states and and wars, and I think that's a an element, particularly in Australia, with colonialism, that is obviously um, a big element here. Um, and in other places in the global south, uh, in the way that capitalism has um, its need to expand. And I guess the, the narrative around that now is um, there's really no, I guess geographically, there's not many more places for it to go. Um, so the way that we approach that question is kind of interesting as well about where can it actually sort of physically and geographically expand to as the globe is kind of capitalized so to speak yeah there's some really interesting stuff i think right here and like i think maybe if we were to kind of pull back a little bit and to and to get to some base definition of what capitalism is you know capitalism is a mode of production which is organized around turning money into more money on an ever increasing and exponential scale and I think that gives it some unique dynamics that we'll need to talk about. But what also uh, links it is it's a mode of production where there is no kind of, you know, we can talk about the role the state plays, but there's no kind of obvious formal and conscious coordination. Rather, you have a situation where human activity is organised through a series of private firms where um, each of those firms has the objective of taking the money that it has and making it capital. And by making it capital, I mean making it money that becomes more money. And each of those firms exist in an interrelationship with each other where uh, they're dependent on the other firms for you know inputs or they're dependent on firms for um, also being successful and paying their workers and creating demand and they all want to grow you know so rosa luxemburg i think just pinches a term from sismondi and describes them as um, interlocking growing spirals and because of this it means even though that there's no overall planner 
the relationship between these different firms being driven by the certain things gives the system a certain dynamic. Um, and that dynamic um, forces each of those players to behave in a certain way and also drives the overall system in a broadly similar, uh, in a broadly identifiable direction. Um, and so maybe we can kind of talk about that a little bit more too. Yeah, I think that would be good. And also, I think you're kind of touching on another question that I had, which I think um, remains uh, a key kind of practical or strategic question among many sections of the left, which is, you know, is is reform possible under capitalism? Can we reform this to be a less exploitative system? Um, or are, are there kind of fundamental, is there fundamental exploitation just in the nature of, of how it works? Or oh, I think we have a yes or no, yes and no response, Joe. Like, um, I think, you know, going back to some of the opening comments that Rob started with is the difference between talking about capitalism or the capitalist mode of production from the market or the free market or the right or even neoliberalism is acknowledging that capitalism has looked different over its history. So I think we, you know, I don't, I don't know what about you, Rob, how, how old do you think capitalism is? I mean, how, how long's a piece of string? I feel like, um, you know, there's been many people who have tied themselves in knots, not just over this question, but around obscure questions like, you know, when did capitalism start in Japan? Because, like, there's, I think there's very, um, there's lots of different um, ways to describe that. But I, so I, I'm not sure how useful it is to say how old it is. I mean, lots of people, I guess, point to the Industrial Revolution as the sort of time when it started and you had a, a technological revolution that suited um, capitalism as a system. Um, but even then, I think it, it's gone through so many phases and differences and ups and downs and all the rest of it. It's hard to say, it will be hard to say around that period when it started. Um, like, like maybe the time that it started was the first time workers rose up in revolt in 1848 or the first ish time there was a global revolt maybe that's the start of modern capitalism who knows you know like i think it's hard to tell i guess just for me the point for me is just to say that it's had different phases that capitalism has looked different at different times and there has been struggles and it has changed and the state has um, intervened in multiple different ways so i think there is both you know capitalism looks different different and has been shaped and has been reformed but at the same time it still has um fundamental tendencies towards it you know tendencies of exploitation and tendencies of crisis and it's tendencies of alienation so they don't cancel each other out joe if that makes sense like i i don't i don't think it can be reformed to the point where it is no longer capitalism i i think it's kind of important to identify like what are in like so like I'm quite influenced by Marx, obviously, right? And so what what does Marx do in Capital, like, um, which I think is a really important start of a study of capitalism, is attempt to identify in abstract, like in laboratory conditions, what are the fundamental elements of capitalism and what make it unique and what are its dynamics. Which are, So it's not just saying what does English capitalism have of the time look like or what does German capitalism at the time look like but a mental exercise to to flush out its fundamental dynamics so I think you know what those fundamental dynamics would be that there'd be a number of them like the the starting point is that capitalism is unique as a system where wealth on a whole takes the form of a commodity 
right? And that, that's a particularly new development in human history. As Rob said, markets have always existed. Well, not they haven't always existed, but they've existed in many different societies. But generally, markets have been a minor experience in people's life that the, the vast majority of wealth that has been created um, between by people has not taken the form of commodities, but has just been used, it's been made for its utility and then distributed in different ways. So what's really interesting about um, capitalism is that wealth takes the form of the commodity. That means it has a price, right? And that everything in, in society increasingly has a price tag. And so uh, wealth, that is, things that are non-commensurable with each other and, lay, and forms of work that are, are non-commensurable with each other are made into commodities and they're made commensurable through prices and through money. So a capitalist society is typified by a society where um, the way you relate to that society is via money. And therefore, rather than a lot of direct face-to-face experiences that you have in the shops or whatever, we do have face-to-face experiences, people that are working in the shops. But ultimately, the most important way that you can relate to the shared wealth of humanity is through how much money you have in your pocket or how much credit you can access and how much things cost. That's a very new situation. And not only is it a society where things take the form of commodities that have prices and money is the thing that stitches them all together, it's a society, as I said before, where the mode of production is driven not by the production of wealth, as in like um, actually tangible things, whether that be a computer program, a loaf of, of bread, a night at the theatre, that's not the driving dynamic. The driving dynamic is to turn money into more money that the firms only engage in specific forms of activity not as an end in themselves but because they can render a profit and that's really crucial so i think we have a situation in the world where you know there's there's you can't spend all the money that's in existence particularly with financialization that there's more money sloshing around the system than than can be effectively spent and that's i think a very important point to understand capitalism's growth dynamic right like because often in like in ecological debates we'll we'll hear that the problem are, is that people are too greedy that they want too many things and i don't know if people are greedy i don't know if people want too many things but the driving dynamic is in capitalism is not because people want too many things but because firms are compelled um to to produce um to make more money and then that pr- presents us with a really interesting problem which is how do we explain where profit comes from because you can uh, so if you have a society made up of different firms that are all doing different activities they're interlocked through a net of buying and selling relationships and prices would would fluctuate with supply and demand that's fine but how, how do we how can we say where more money is going to come from how can we explain profit now you can partially explain it by you know maybe um, one firm cheats another someone charges too much someone undercuts you know individual stupid decisions but that's just shifting the money around does that make sense it doesn't give us a sense to explain where profit on a systematic level comes from so it's necessary to kind of do that next thing to say well here's a society based on market exchanges where every firm is being driven by profit where the hell does profit come from? Yeah, and I think it's important there to like look at and think about 
the way we talk about value because I think because of the kind of um, neoliberal revolution in economics with Hayek and um, Friedman, um, when they talk about value, it's very much about price. So it's about supply and demand and the market sort of, you know, dictates the value of an object through um, con the consumer behavior of whether they want that thing or not, or whether there's a demand for that thing. Um, that's really, I think, a very superficial um, reading of value. Whereas I think the, va the what a Marxist look at, or even to some extent a, a non-Marxist, more sort of uh, Keynesian or social democratic view of it is that there's more to value than that. Um, and there's, a, there's actually a bit of a shift in some mainstream economics and shifting back to look at the value debates between people like Marx and Adam Smith and David Ricardo um, and looking at how they assess value um, to actually get to the core of, of what capitalism is now. I think because of the influence of finance on the system and how it is just sort of shifting money around um, and is that actually creating any tangible value that can be used for new things or existing things. Did you have anything else to add on that, David, or should we? <laughs> uh, yeah, a li little bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, value can be. I, I'm I'm obsessed with the question of value, right? So so I'm I, I'm quite I want to discipline myself on this, um, re, re, really really heavily. So I I would say um, one thing that I think even before the neoliberals, like right back to the late 1800s, there was a move on to kind of throw away the concept of, of value, and um, rather just have a concept of price. So the idea of, of value essentially says that, okay, yes, prices fluctuate up and down all the time, but they kind of circulate around a point, and that is the, the kind of value of a, a, and that's the value of the commodity, which is its, I guess, kind of average worth. And so Adam Smith, I haven't read Ricardo, but Adam Smith and Mark say, okay, if you, if you cancel out the fluctuations of supply and demand, say supply and demand are equal, you know, an Apple and a Porsche still are worth cost different things, right? And they say what that cost is, is its value. And for Adam Smith, he has a very um, straight up labor theory of value, where for him, it's just like, you know, in his model, um, people know the time that different things take to make, and his world is a world of petty producers in the late 1700s. So that's what's going on. You know, people kind of can, are factoring in that it costs more to make a, or it takes more time to do this, or it takes more time to do that. Marx's argument is a bit different and a bit more sophisticated. And he would say that in a capitalist um, society, the, the value of something, it's... <sighs> It, you know how how much it is really worth, how much prices fluctuate around about around it. It's not just the the concrete labor that it takes to create something, but it's how that concrete labor is understood through the fluctuations of the market system. So you you can't just stand next to someone with a with a clock with a you know a, a stopwatch, and say okay that took you one hour to make that that's worth one hour's worth of labor and therefore I've got a stopwatch and I'm next to someone else and um, it's worth 
you know, they made two in an hour, so it's worth two of those. That's not what he's saying. He's saying rather it's through that process of selling, through that process of exchange, the different real tangible efforts that we made in a kitchen or a factory or whatever gets plugged in with all the other different efforts and that time gets determined by money. So you you create this interesting kind of understanding where literally time is money, right? That the different efforts that we make, the value that prices... um, fluctuate around is actually simultaneously determined by the interaction of the creativity that we do and the fluctuation of those prices. So how we experience the real worth of our labor is through an alienated and market and commoditized form. Does that make sense? Like that's all I really want to kind of say on it there because there's a lot more to get into it. Um, I think like in the past there have been some kinds of Marxists who've had a labor theory of value that think you do can stand next to someone with a stopwatch and measure the time of production. But it's more about how disparate and non-commensurable forms of work find their worth through being made commensurable in the commodity form right and that's why commodity is so important and why money is so important like you don't know really what your work is worth until you take it to market and you you attempt to exchange it right like and like it, it, you you don't know what your apples are worth until they're traded for another commodity and in real capitalism what everything becomes traded for is money money becomes the universal equivalent the thing that allows us to understand everything and then what one of the definitions we can have of capitalism then is self-valorizing value which is one of the the terms I'm, i'm obsessed with so it's the it's how to take more money how to take value and turn it into more value ever how do you self valorize value and I, th- I think building on that and I think leading into some of the, I guess, the discussions that have been happened, that have happened a lot on this podcast is probably stuff, is, is the, the also the concept of, I guess, socially necessary labor time. So that's how much, um, in, in this case, money or, or how much labor, how much a, cap, a capitalist who wants to make a profit pays um, a worker in a kitchen or a factory or office building wherever um to ensure that 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 they're they're socially able to come to work the next day and i think a lot of the political contestation um at the moment around issue uh, around the idea of work when we talk about things like a job guarantee or um a ubi or and you know bringing in other political issues are around the contestation of 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 how much is labor is socially necessary within a capitalist system um, because capitalism these days is super productive um, and I guess one of the elements coming out of what Dave is talking about is um, as capitalism develops it becomes in more and more productive so a single work hour now is extremely more productive than it was 50 years ago um, and if that keeps happening I guess the the socially necessary, the so the the labor time necessary to create the value to sustain yourself decreases, um, and I think that's very evident for people wherever they work um, that that's the case. Um, I mean, in my own work, I work in an office job. I used to work in a kitchen. It's very different, you know. In a kitchen, you work, you create, 
meals, you send the meal. It's a very um, end-to-end process. I now work in an office and I just, th- every time I, you know, for example, use an Excel spreadsheet, I think about the people like 40, 30, 40 years ago who would have had to have done all this by hand and how long that would take um, to deal in sort of these reams of data that we now have that we can just easily chop and change in a spreadsheet that I can do as one person, which maybe 40 years ago would have been the job of 50 people, you know, 30 people potentially. So I think it, it brings in um, those sort of discussions and about how work is structured now. Yeah. And I think like that point, Rob, which is 100% on about one of the things that typifies capitalism's increasing productivity and therefore the cheapening of commodities on the whole is something, yeah, that's an observable fact. And to get to an understanding of that, we need to kind of work, talk about um, where profit comes from and why the understanding of where profit comes from understands how technology technologies is... A, why things become more productive and also that'll lead us into an understanding of capitalists capitalism's tendency towards crisis so like to kind of answer my own setup there if that's all right um so where does profit come from well i think on on a again on a kind of capitalism in abstract you know of course in real world people cheat all the time and profit comes from all different kind of places but in in kind of capitalism in laboratory conditions i think part of the argument coming from marx is that profit is possible because there is a special commodity on the market and the special commodity on the market is labor power so that is that um it is the the capacity of our bodies and brains to work and that is an undeterred, you know, at some level, that's quite an elastic capacity, right? Like um, how much we work and the rate we work and the speed that we work and the intensity and how productive it is, it has an elasticity to it. So Marx's argument is, says, actually, we get paid fair wages. So we go to, the, go to uh, work and we sell the commodity that we've got. And like any other commodity, while prices might fluctuate it, in an average level, it goes for its value. And its value is its socially necessary labour time. You know, all the different commodities that went into allowing that commodity, our labour power, to be reproduced. Food, housing, education, whatever. And that's represented in our wage. But when we're put to work, there is the capacity to um, get more work out of us that produces commodities that when they go to market will return a higher value than that which was spent on our wages, right? So that's surplus value, that's exploitation, and that's the source of all profit. Now, by the source of all profit, it means that that surplus value that's generated through the point of production through exploitation will then be distributed through the system and will turn up in profits in different places and we can we can talk about that but the heart of profit then is exploitation it's that class relationship that you mentioned before that people who appear to be formally free equals so in a society like australia so they're citizen let's just assume this and of course in reality it's a far more complicated picture but let's assume they're citizens with the same formal legal rights the same rights to vote the same rights to property go into an agreement with each other where everyone you know i'm paid my fair wage and i agree to, to work for that 
fair wage. But in that moment, it leads to exploitation and creates the class relationship. And that is the the fundamental source of profit and also of struggle. And this then leads to some other dynamics that define capitalism. What there's, um, each firm is in competition with each other. So that competition is to increase um, more profit and surplus value can be increased roughly in two different ways. One is that you push the amount of work, the time of work, that people do for the same amount of wages, which is something we, we see in Australia. We know that um, unpaid overtime is massive. Or we push down the amount that we actually pay people for that. We try to intensify the work or we make it more productive. So that is we, the, the firms increase the amount of uh, capital that is spent on machinery. And so what happens when uh, more money is spent on machi- machinery the first firm that does that can then produce commodities at a lower value than their value. So if they go to market and then sell them at their normal price, they realise an extra profit. That's called relative surplus value. And in a society where each firm is conditioned and um, compelled by competition, that then becomes the new standards and other firms unless they want to be destroyed and eaten and of course firms are going down and failing all the time will then adapt the new productive levels so what you then have is an inherent dynamic in the capitalist system to drive towards to be more and more technologically productive as each firm tries to realize it's a greater amount of uh, surplus value, and I guess let's talk about productive firms here, in competition with each other. The added element would then be struggle, right? That the course of the struggle at the workplace, increasing technology is then used as a reaction against struggle to either break up certain compositions of labor, reorganize labor, and force more productivity out of people. So that dynamic um, that we see all around us comes inherently from from that drive. And I, I think just adding to that, I think that's where you see um, there's an obsession, I think, within, I guess, policy making from a, a kind of policy wonkish kind of view on currently on productivity. And there has been since probably like the mid-90s. Um, and in the Australian context, um, I guess, and this is kind of a very governmental view, um, that we saw this, Australia saw this huge rise in productivity throughout the sort of mid to late 90s. There's a big deba- there was actually quite a lot of debate after that um, about the nature of that productivity. So was it that, the, you know, the, the kind of economic conditions were, were perfect and, um, you know, they, they had this kind of, uh, a few different factors of the economic conditions established for the government were good for firms to drive productivity. You had, you know, the emerging technological boom and all the rest of it. Um, or was it simply just an in- intensification of work that less workers were actually working a lot more and not being paid for it like they used to be because of the waning of waning of union power? Um, and I think, so I think a lot of countries went through this kind of productivity boom um, in sort of late, mid to late, the mid to late, what we'll call like the neoliberal period in um, a whole bunch of different economies. And now I think we see have a situation where um, 
capitalists and governments are in this situation where the system is 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 actually quite productive, but productivity itself, but that's not necessarily manifesting itself in increasing growth rates or necessarily hugely increasing um, the profit margins. Um, they're having to invest a lot more of their profit margins to to maintain ever decreasing levels of productivity, and I think that's part of that. Um, I guess the 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 problem the system now finds it in. I think for anyone sort of following economic debates, I mean, I guess that's why people, why governments and um, think tanks and all those kind of institutions are obsessed with productivity because I guess they want to kind of productivity them themselves out of um, some of the contradictions of capitalism in the in how it sort of makes profit. Yeah, and I, I want to like touch on this kind of idea of contradictions of capitalism. I think we hear that thrown around a lot too. So I guess quite briefly, because we have to change gear in a minute to cover everything that we need to. But if someone said to you, like, what is, the, you know, what are the contradictions of capitalism? Or, or why why do I always hear about crises of capitalism? Where does that come from? Where's that, where's that going? Well, I would say that the contradiction, the contradiction of capitalism exists in its simplest form, that you can, you know, that if, if capitalism is meant to be that I take commodities, I take money, I, I, I invest them, I make commodities, and then I go to the market and sell them for more profit, any moment that relationship can break down, right? That I can go to market and I don't sell anything, right? And then, then my money's not worth anything anymore. So um, that, that's a problem, right? Um, but I think we can say more broadly than that, there is a general tendency in capitalism that leads it to situations where that becomes a general phenomena, where it, it's not just um, one business that can't sell anything, but there's not an effective level of sales across the entire um, society that pr that realises enough profit for capitalism to keep on growing. And and so people kind of theorise this in different ways, and there's a lot of ink spilt over it about if it's over-accumulation, under-accumulation or whatever. But I think the basic thing is that we are talking about before you know, is that that general drive, capitalism increases in size, it increases um, its its um, level of, um, of proportional investment in technology versus labour, creates these particular situations where there is something called over-accumulation, where there is too much capital and too many commodities hitting the market to be sold at a level which re produces a return in profits that continues capitalism to, to allows capital to continue to grow and that produces a crisis as firms start to fall unemployment starts to rise and that crisis then um, pulls capitalism down and then relaunches accumulation on a new basis with a general argument um, that each time it relaunches accumulation it launches it with an intensification of those contradictions so my i am broadly convinced that um, global capitalism has been in a condition of over-accumulation since the late 70s, but the kind of crisis that would flush the system out has been kind of permanently um, deferred through an expansion of, well, I don't know, maybe it won't be deferred to ever. It's, be, it's been deferred until this point through an expansion in finance and through state intervention. 
And so rather what we have is a series of financial crises that get pretty bad, but then bailouts and we're in a weird kind of anti-gravitational machine at the moment. I think that's the simplest way to add it. I think the other thing that's quite important to add that apart from the point of production is that capitalism has to move through space and time, you know, so um, investments, commodities circulate through society um, if i make a commodity it then has to go to the shops and be sold and all those points um, put a pressure on as well because the quicker that i can get out and sell my commodities the quicker i can reinvest again so capitalism moves through various different shapes it moves through money it moves through production it moves through the shape of the commodities and it moves across space too so there's a constant pressure to speed up how quickly things move too and all of those can um, break down as well and so we have an oversupply of um kind of not just the production of commodities but the businesses that are then reliant on commodities and huge gluts of money in finance um, that keep the whole thing rolling and so that's which i think is the ultimate kind of contradiction rob mentioned rosa luxemburg's work before and rosa luxemburg identifies a different set of contradictions and her basic argument is that there's never enough demand within a pure capitalist society for it to sell enough commodities to survive and she says marx doesn't explain this so her argument is that there's always the necessity for an outside as rob defined before so do we have another pressure that as capitalism grows and destroys an outside that it takes away the very terrain it needed for more demand to be generated for profit to be realized cool so i think we've (laughs) we've covered a lot there um which is really good i think we've gone from kind of fundamentals um and and covered the question of, of exploitation or like you know why is it bad basically um, and come all the way out to, to crisis and contradictions as well um, so before we move on did either of you wanted to add any any other points that you felt were important yeah lots but, <laughs> yeah. you know it's <laughs> any completely um, completely no. necessary you know I, I think i think that's the thing about it as well it's like um you know, there's always more nuance you can add to your abstract understanding. And then it's the question of actually grasping capitalism in reality, you know, and, and it's, they're, they're very difficult things to do and it's a never finished work, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's certainly comforting to someone like me who, um, yeah, <laughs> still finds myself very overwhelmed by so many concepts and terms. Um, but, yeah, I think what you just said then, understanding capitalism in practice is... Maybe what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show, um, so roughly, yeah, 40 minutes or so. Um, and I think, so what you said earlier talking about um, exploitation in wage labour, you said the heart of profit is exploitation. So I think that gets to a good understanding of why so many of us see, see capitalism as such a shitty system. But that's kind of a one-on-one understanding in a way, like it's kind of talking about the, the, the wage relationship between you know, a worker and a boss or a company. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about kind of systemic problems, um, problems that maybe aren't so obviously related to capitalism, but which I think, you know, many of us would argue fundamentally do stem from it. Um, so I think a big one that's on a lot of our minds at the moment is climate change. Um, obviously, over the past couple of months, we've seen large swaths of the country burning down from bushfires. Um, so I guess just to kick things off with a broad question do you think is climate change a problem with capitalism and if you know why and how does that work do you want to start rob uh no i'm fine 
<laughs> okay. Um, so yes, I think it is. Um, and I think at the basic level, it's what we talked about before with exploitation and um, the growing... That because of the exploitation in the heart of capitalism, there is a drive in capitalism for an increasing um, drive towards productivity, which means an increasing investment of capital in technology in the in the point of production, which actually explains why capitalism needs so much energy to begin with. Does that make sense? That if climate change is is a problem or, uh, and partially produced by um, the things that come out of producing energy on an ever and not just its pollution, but the system is growing and more energy is being used. I think the key is the closest way to go, well, why are we in a situation that happened? Because in the capitalist mode of production, the drive to turn money into more money leads to intensification at the point of production, which means an increased investment in technology, which means increased energy use. Added to this too is that because commodities have to circulate through space and time, um, that there is an increasing expansion of the use of fossil fuels in transporting commodities and transporting people across a global system. And then if we add to that struggle over these things too, um, and how capital capitalism has moved across the globe and reorganised production across the globe, often in a response to tr struggle as well as its expansion in the demand um, expansionary um, pressures, we can understand what is the driving cause that has got us in this situation, which to my mind makes it very hard to believe that there is an easy transition to a different, to a capitalism that doesn't need to consume fossil fuels at this level. Yeah, I think the, I guess it is, I think this also comes up about the, there's sort of that question around, um, like the, that Dave left it on around, is a non-climate, like is a, is there such a thing as a climate-friendly capitalism? Um, and I guess there's a, there's a kind of not very helpful, easy answer, which a lot of, I guess, socialists and stuff has, that's just, just, well, no, of course not. But then I think um, you, there has to be a bit more of an unraveling of that because obviously there's certain sections of capital which are trying to actually deal with the climate crisis. Um, and so I think that's um, that sort of muddies the waters a bit. So, yeah, I guess it'd be, I think it would be useful to talk about potentially the interplay between, you know, the sections of capital that are trying to position themselves as sort of addressing the climate crisis. Because in the last couple of days, what we've seen, like the Bank of International Settlements has put out, um, you know, a paper on called Green Swans, and I haven't read it yet, but it's, you know, that's the paper that's being reported as the RBA has been told, so the Reserve Bank of Australia has been told that it has to be ready to buy out um, fossil fuel-based um, industries in case of uh, situation to financial co collapse. I think it was, was the BlackRock investment um, firm uh, recently... Um, has said that none of it's you know it won't invest any money in fossil fuel production anymore and also the uh, world economic forum just had a paper recently and while it said um, on, on how well is the world going at moving away from fossil fuels and the report was it's really fucking bad it's we're not moving away from it it did identify that there are key corporations that are doing so so i think um for me part of the conversation is not about you know it's not about wicked capitalists like um 
like rubbing their hands and throwing money around and laughing while the world burns. It's more like what are the systemic dynamics that are inherent to capitalism that constrain the capacity to do it. And I guess the other thing is that it's different. Capitalism looks different in different places in the world system. And so that there are some countries where the move away from fossil fuels has been easier or is easier than others because they play a different role in a global division of labour. And then I guess probably um, to be a bit more um, floodite about it, there would be different like uh, power blocks in different states, different fractions of capital, um, different uh, social movements and contesting powers that also interact with those dynamics that uh, constrain how capitalism can move. There's also, um, there's a guy called George Kofensis who's um, super interesting, but he also writes about the importance that energy production has um, as, so, so like w- one of the things that we get to in a real capitalist society is that um, even though, you know, surplus value is made at the point of production profit is kind of shared across the system through competition so you get a situation where firms like might not you know like the profit that a firm makes doesn't just come from its share of workers that it's exploited but rather from its share of exploitation on a social level so uh, an energy company might not produce a lot of surplus value but it sucks up um, through its bills through charging for electricity surplus value that's made throughout the entire system and so these uh, energy companies and energy firms are quite important because they suck up a huge amount of profit and that profit is then invested so there's a crisis for the system when um, an energy company becomes threatened because it kind of threatens not just its own capacity to reproduce but the viability of the system on the whole because it threatens one of the key things that literally powers everything and it threatens um, an accumulation of capital that then can be invested back into the system yeah and i think the the scale i think the scale of what people are beginning to sort of perceive as to what's necessary to move move away from um I guess you know fossil 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 fuels and and carbon intensive capitalism. Um, it's kind of it's becoming increasingly hard, I suppose, for um, people to argue that that this can happen within capitalism um, because of the nature of the system, as Dave spoke about, um, and I guess the how that manifests itself politically, even for like a well-meaning capitalist firm is never going to put themselves out of business to address climate change um well i think maybe it's actually worth getting back to something you said at the very start of the show um dave which is how does everything we've been talking about particularly in the first half of the show um talking about you know the functions of capital um how do we how does that relate to questions of race and gender because obviously one of the traps one could fall into is, is just reading these kind of things as, as quote-unquote neutral or race racially blind or gender blind um which obviously they're not in practice so i guess what are some basic links we can make there how do you see those links occurring and playing out do you want me to go first uh unless rob wants to <laughs> no you can go that's right Alright, um, so I think this is um, where we have to stop just dealing with the, the um, version of capitalism that exists in abstract. Capitalism as a historical society has always 
and and has required um, substantial violent and unequal hierarchies based around ide identity such as gender and race um, they're not the same i think you know i think you can say there's a general drive in the history of capitalism that has seen um, the labor that is traditionally associated with women being pushed out of paid work and into the home and that this work um, has been the work of producing the most important commodity that hits the market labor power and it's been work that has not been directly waged and we can argue um, about if it is covered by the formal wage or not so all the, the all the things that take um, part of the oppression and exploitation of women has been and the control of women and the control of women's bodies and um, all that kind of stuff has been crucial to capitalism functioning my general thought is uh, that you know, obviously the oppression of women predates capitalism and patriarchal or gendered relationships or however you want to define them um, have their own kind of dynamic too that interrelates and is um both is is kind of determined by capitalism but also has worked to determine capitalism itself their co-determining their co-determining dynamics i think you would say so too with kind of racial oppression it has always been crucial to capitalism there would have been no capitalism without slavery and the history of capitalism has always been you know that there's been um, genocide against indigenous populations and creations of hierarchy within the workforce um both in trapping different people in certain kinds of work or excluding them from uh, waged work proper that have been necessary to capitalism um, and also have um, often been defended by elements of the labor movement as well as different sections of workers have defended their privileges against others and again again i think these are co-determining um, but also have their own independence i think therefore as a form of anti-capitalism you, you cannot have a real anti-capitalism that does not take up these questions. And anyway, this is often where struggle goes on. But I would also say for people that are mainly motivated by questions of struggle around gender or anti-racism, that the historical experience of gender and anti-racism or other forms of impression um, compels you to have to start thinking about the question of capitalism as well. Um, and also because this is very dynamic, and it's changing quite a lot. And I think in some ways, the centers of capitalism are shifting uh, across the globe and new and different things are happening around these hierarchies at the same time. So we have seen in capitalism in the last, say in the 20th century, um, because of struggles and also how those struggles have related to the dynamics of capitalism, profound changes in how things like race and gender and sexuality and the like are lived. That doesn't mean that they've disappeared as oppressions and it's important to try to grasp that and those changes and what they mean and how things are different than they used to be before. Yeah, and I think returning to the last the last um, question around climate change, I think it's been interesting that a lot of the recent commentary around bushfires in Australia and um, and climate change there's been a real, I think, and I think this is very much enshrined in, I guess, a a, re, a resurgence of um, sort of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, and First Nations sort of um, confidence in in raising um, political issues. You know, there's, I guess, a lot more a lot more commentary and acknowledgement of 
um, First Nations people and their struggles in Australia than there has been for a while. Um, and I think it's I think it's there's a there's a particular I think um, um, with the development of, of capitalism in Australia and its expansion throughout the colony um, and the way that that expansion took place um, in sort of the dispossession that went along with that um, and the and the genocide that went along with with that expansion I think there's um, like I from when I, you know, so I've been involved in politics for about, I don't know, 20, 25 years. And I think, um, I guess the, the issues and the prominence of first nations peoples and, um, and you know, the, the, the politics around, um, centering that haven't been as, this is probably the most prominent they've been for me, um, as someone who's been involved in politics, um, so I think that's that's quite significant, um, and I think recognizing that, and um, I guess you know seeing how that's related to the way that colonial capitalism or settler capitalism was established in Australia is like central to being an anti-capitalist in Australia, particularly a white anti-capitalist in Australia. Yeah, can we talk a bit about the relationship between colonialism and capitalism? I think there's a lot to say, but maybe just sketching that out um, quite briefly. Um, well, I guess, like, the f for me, I suppose it's, um, it, it is that, that, that sort of geographic expansion of capitalism and seeking out new markets and all the rest of it. And I think there's, I guess there's the, there's the common, there's the sort of, um, the narrative that went along with particularly, I suppose, British imperialism, um, that they were sort of civilising, it was a civilising mission to bring capitalism to um, the global south and and parts of, um, like parts of Africa and South America and places like Australia. Um, but I think one of the more interesting things, I think, is the integration of China into the, I guess, into the global, the global market. And I think this is, is quite um, illustrative of, of how this works. So China obviously was a huge market, always has been a huge market prior to capitalism, was had um, by far the largest population in, in, on earth. Um, and for a long time, alongside the development of capitalism in Europe, um, it was a hard market for them to crack because I guess the Chinese didn't really need anything that was produced in Europe because they could produce it themselves. Um, and I think, you know, that it took basically to open up the Chinese market to European capital. Um, it took gunboats and cannons um, and a treaty which established Hong Kong. So I think that is fairly illustrative of, you know, I guess how capitalism um, in, its, in that stage, its expansive um, colonial stage, sort of, I guess, was very much um, a state project. Um, it, obviously, there was firms involved, but um, states were very much involved in its violent expansion um, and consolidation in places, you know, basically um, described now as what you'd say is the global south and in places like Australia um, as a, a sort of white colonial project. Yeah, I think the only thing I would like to say, I, I think that's entirely right, that the history of capitalism has been one of the production of um, a particular global division of labour, which has 
put certain places of the world in subordinate um, places than others. Um, I would say that this has a real historical dynamic to it as well. And so one of the probably more fruitful points of disagreement that might be going on in terms of debates in Australia is that there's um, a lot of people who talk about Australian society as a settler colony and describe it as being defined by something like a coloniality to it. I think it's a particularly really interesting analysis and there's a lot that's trying to be said by that. But there's also a different analysis as well that would see um, kind of colonisation as being only the period when there was like formal direct political control of uh, core states, mainly European states, over large swathes of the world, and that that has shifted historically into imperialism and now into a different situation that you might call new imperialism or globalisation or empire, whatever, and that that those changes are due to changes in the dynamics of capitalism, but also about global struggles too. So I think we've got a situation in Australia where, do, where people are attempting to understand the kind of continu- the kind of racialized continuities of Australian society with the notion of coloniality, but it's also important to um, grasp how the world order has changed over hundreds of years and how some of that has been through really important struggles, some of it's been through through development of capitalism and the like. And uh, I think that that's pretty important because um, there are there are really important differences between the world order now and say the world order in the eighteen seventies. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, well, I think we've got time for one more question, and I kind of want to talk maybe about emo- how it feels to be kind of in the system, the emotional effects of capitalism, if you will. So, I think um, you know this broadly ties back to alienation. Um, and we've talked a bit about this on, on previous podcasts, but I think for many of us, we experience work as like feeling pretty terrible. Um, and also unemployment is feeling terrible and there's a mental health crisis, you know, in this, in this country, um, especially for a lot of young people. So I guess, yeah, I'm interested to kind of get your take on how, like, why do these feelings arise? How can we trace them back to problems of capitalism and what are they? Well, on one hand, I, you know, I'm not, I'm probably not trained around, um, kind of, that much about notions of subjectivity or, or psychology or, or things like that but I think um, I think I would definitely I think people I think people feel a whole range of different things right I think it's people aren't just miserable all the time and one of the reasons capitalism survives is because we live within it and have a <coughs> have a full human life but I think when we talk about alienation alienation is not just the experience of exploitation in in the point of production where we feel we don't control the work that we do it's also living in a world where this incredible wealth this incre- you know billions of people are mobilized in the creation of these incredible volumes of wealth but we are alienated from it too where we can only relate to it through money if that makes sense so we live in a situation where globally humanity is working together but we're not in control of it It's determined through the apparently objective laws of capitalist competition. And I would add to that, because what I would also add, because you um, mentioned it, we haven't mentioned it before, is unemployment. Unemployment is an inescapable necessity of a capitalist society. Capitalism needs unemployment. Um, The people who are unemployed are actually working for capitalism. They are doing the work 
of competing in the labour market and therefore putting a downward pressure on wages. And they're also doing the work of reproducing themselves as cheaply as possible um, so the state doesn't have to draw on capital more through taxes to keep them going and they are providing the basis of more labour for when capital expands. So that's also important that that kind of crushing experience of unemployment and it can sometimes be a crushing experience of unemployment but also you know unemployed people have organized together and often have used unemployment as a point of rebellion is also inescapable um, from capitalism i think probably what would also add to that is if people are thinking about you know um there's been a great essay, and we've, I think everyone shared it from in the saying different periods of capitalism have different periods of, of mental pain associated with them, where, you know, under Fordism, it was like boredom and depression. Currently, it's probably anxiety, and it's because the current confinement of capitalism um, is so insecure, where so much of what we need to survive is on, is on credit, where there's feelings of so much um, pressure as well. So I think there is like an emotional modality to, to capitalism generally, but also specifically with these contradictions. And in that sense, you know, I do think, you know, it is making us miserable to contradict slightly what I said before. Yeah, I think also there's some, you can glean some understanding of that, I think, to the way that, I guess, the, the state manages the un unemployment for the system. So I think in Australia specifically, you have a situation where um, we've never really had a particularly strong welfare state, I don't think. Um, so we've had unemployment benefits for a long time. Uh, we didn't really have public health until the 70s. Um, and I think now we have, we have a system of, I guess, social that supports elements of social reproduction in the system so that I, I guess tries to support the notion of you know producing the commodity of labor um, and the state playing a role in that um, where that it's increasingly punitive um, so and by that I mean I, I suppose the 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 anxiety that the state induces in people who are unemployed through the Centrelink system um, is huge and that actually costs a lot of money for the state to do that um, they have to pay other workers um, significant amounts of money as a total to manage a system to re induce anxiety in a population to ensure that that pressure is maintained um, on you know their labor that Dave was talking about that they do for the system so I think um, a lot of uh, com comparatively, I think a, a significant amount of work um, and labour from the state actually goes in to, you know, I guess even in unemployment or even you know for people who are on better on some kind of benefits to maintain that anxiety, even when it's the purpose of it may be to um, not to lessen that anxiety. So I think that's an interesting observation about. Um, how the government and the state plays also plays that role. In terms of our emotional experience of capitalism, the other thing that I would add too is that the expansion of capitalism has meant the commodification of, of culture, the development of the culture industry. 
And so this um, leads to a particular form of alienation where how we view human experience and so much of our life is spent viewing and listening to things becomes not not just a reflection of human creativity on an artistic or cultural level but a product that's sold back to people with certain ideological content and I guess kind of certain um, incitement to enjoy and be, um, you know, kind of successful and surrounded by wealth and live this perfect life and be a perfect person. And I think that kind of intersection between um, the, how the culture industry explains life to us and how we actually ex- experience life um, as, uh, you know, someone with only their labour power to sell can be really shit. And I think also it's witnessing the people that we care about and we love experience that too that increases that shitness so despite you know ideologues of capitalism thinking about us as we're just kind of alienated monads going through making is monad a word i hope it is um making um you know kind of independent utility to making decisions we're actually human beings with a whole complicated sets of relationships and i think one of the things that i i see one of the sources of misery that i see around me is people really sad about how miserable the people they love and care about are well, I think I think I think that's where I think I think this is the stuff that you know Mark Mark Fisher specifically and the people around him talked about a lot in the Capitalism Realism book, which I think has becomes fairly influential around you know like the importance of some sort of horizon, um, and I guess the importance of some form of um, not not necessarily a utopia, but I guess um, you know he sort of. He compares, um, I guess, the cultural reproduction of capitalism now to previous um, iterations of, of capitalism, particularly, I think, the sort of social democratic welfare state version of capitalism. Um, and, you know, the the wild variety of, of new cultural experiences that were thrown up throughout the 70s and the 80s and, um, and how... The capitalism of the the two thousands and the twenty tens was simply replicating those cultural reproductions, um, and I guess how there's like where's the horizon, even even from a capitalist sense, like where's the ho- where's the new horizon to go to for for people to think about something to look forward to, and I guess that if you take away that, that's where you get this kind of um, despair um because there's actually nothing that this this is all there is you know what's in front of you yeah i think oh sorry i was just gonna say i think yeah one of, one of the kind of most notable um uh recent trends or currents in pop culture is that there is nothing new anymore everything's a remake of something that's gone before which is yeah i mean like in one sense just a cynical obviously movie studios know they can make lots of easy money off these relatively um straightforward films but yeah if you read it in the in the kind of broader mark fisher cultural sense it's really pretty depressing but go on dave but i see because i know we're getting to the end and i I think we haven't actually talked about the most important thing about capitalism because i think the most important thing about capitalism is it creates the conditions and policy and possibility of it being overcome and being replaced with something much better yeah, I think I didn't want to get too much into that because I think future shows are going to touch on that more. But I think you're right, and maybe it's a good spot to end on a brief discussion of that. <laughs> and I think that's that's the mo- that's that's the thing that um, what allows us to have a critique of capitalism is that there is already existing in our struggles 
whatever they look like, whether they be classic class struggles or other things, the um, capacity to overcome the world that as it exists. And we talked about previously that as capitalism grows and expands, and we actually maybe didn't identify one thing that it produces, you know, to quote Marx and Engels, is its own grave diggers, right? That as more and more people are drawn into wage labour, more and more people are exploited at its very heart, what is also created there is the capacity to be realised for us to struggle together to create a different kind of social order and also the technological capacities that have been developed to allow humanity to do a lot of different things. Now, we might we might not decide to keep it all. You know, maybe we won't, um, you know, keep all the different factories and all the forms of production that we currently have, but a potential exists. And it's not just as a future potential. I think we've got to start a practice of recognising how already in every day in capitalism and in the struggles in capitalism you know there's a new world waiting to be born and i know that sounds a bit corny but i think it's it's a really crucial point and it that's the only thing that makes talking about capitalism for an hour and a half worthwhile <laughs> well i think that's pretty much um yeah we're pretty much on time so um thank you both for contributing your thoughts and discussing and discussing this topic um which is huge and as we kind of mentioned several times absolutely no chance of covering all of it in an hour and a half show um but yeah i just wanted to invite you both to you know if there's anything else you wanted to mention or even like you know reading lists for people who want to go away and read on um read further about this that'd be great to hear from yeah uh, yes thanks so much um for the opportunity if people are kind of interested in this kind of stuff and particularly in the first half where we talked more about you know kind of a presentation of kind of marx's work i i can't recommend enough um michael heinrich's book heinrich's book which i think the name is a introduction to karl marx three volumes of capital or something very boring and german sounding like that but um if that is i think the best book you can start with to get an introduction to this kind of stuff um, and I would probably, I guess, the books that influence me the most, and I know Dave disagrees with this person, but a lot of David Harvey's books are quite accessible in the way they talk about capital and the limits of capital and the contradictions of capital. So that's probably a good first step for people um, looking to... Still a legend. Yeah. He's pretty cool, David Harvey, <laughs> even if I disagree with him. Um, so I, I would recommend like any of his books... Um, to have a read. And, of, of course, the three volumes of Capital and the Grundrisse. Oh, yeah, in the original German. <laughs> That's mandatory. Yeah. In the mega. Um, I think if I... I'll add a couple of my own to that. I think, yeah, the Mark Fisher book that uh, Rob mentioned, Capitalist Realism, is um, good. It's very short, um, so it's not like a huge tome, and I think it's become popular because it is quite accessible to read. Um what else did I read? I think if you're starting, like I started trying to read nonfiction about, you know, politics and the economy um, last year-ish. Uh, Yanis Varoufakis's book, Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, is like a really straightforward way of spelling out some super basic concepts. Like he starts from the beginning with the concept of a surplus, which is very important um, and just kind of like takes you through some of those building blocks. But, yeah, thanks so much again for coming on to both of you. And, uh, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll have you on future shows as well. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye. <laughs>